You're listening to Season 10 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam from 1979 to today. This is Episode 10.5, A Time and Place to Die, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, and I'd much rather have a time and place to dine. And I'm Nina, new to Victory Gundam and growing increasingly fond of all the old folks in this show. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by 738 paying subscribers. Man, I feel like we've been stuck in the mid-700s for ages. Maybe Victory Gundam will be the season to finally get us to 800. Special thanks to our newest patrons and bringing us closer to that goal, Emily S., Balthazar, Michael A., Shafty, and Brat Hot Tub. You keep MSB Genki. And thank you, Steve, for supporting us on Ko-fi. This week on Mobile Suit Breakdown, Victory Gundam Episode 5, Gozora no Hangeki, or Godzorla's Counterattack. The English title is similar enough to Shar's Counterattack that a person might wonder if it is an intentional reference, but the similarity is deceptive. The two titles use different words for counterattack. The Hangeki in Gozora no Hangeki means to return an attack immediately, as in a boxing match when one boxer strikes back after eating a punch to the jaw. The Gyakushu in Gyakushu no Sha describes someone who, having been defeated, gathers their strength and chooses their moment for revenge. The episode was written by Sonoda Hideki, storyboarded by Nishimori Akira, and directed by Tamada Hiroshi, with Taniguchi Moriyasa as animation director. Guest starring in the voice cast this week is Tachiki Fumihiko, playing Watari Gila. Tachiki is a prolific voice actor, but is probably best known in mecha circles for the role of the hypnotic monk Plaktu in The Vision of Escaflone. I'm just kidding, he's actually the voice of Ikari Gendo in Neon Genesis Evangelion. And now, the recap. With Sabat's squadron destroyed in the skies over Cosarelia, and Chronicle's attempt at revenge foiled by Uso in the fully assembled Victory Gundam, the League Militaire and their concealed factory can finally catch their collective breath. While Shakti takes Karlman for a long walk in the woods, Uso and the rest of the group from the Kamion disassemble the Gundam. The League's mechanics, young men and women in mismatched jumpsuits, have heard that this new pilot is young, but are still shocked to learn how young. All the attention makes Uso uncomfortable, and he slips away to chat with Odello's little pack of refugees. Warren reminds him that they did their part in the battle too, firing rockets from the backs of speeding Wapas, and Uso is quick to offer thanks. Despite the loss of his Zolo, Chronicle is alive and lurking in the woods near the factory entrance. Shakti passes nearby, carrying Carlman, and singing a lullaby about dreams and poppy blossoms. The song tugs at Chronicle's heart, it's one that his sister, the queen of the Zanskar Empire, used to sing. How strange to hear it here and now. Back at the local Bespa headquarters, Ensign Gary Tun is still recovering from the wounds he sustained when Uso destroyed his Zolo. Consumed by rage and desperate for revenge, Gary fortifies himself with a heavy dose of painkillers, 
extracted by force from a terrified army doctor, and requisitions a new Bespa mobile suit, the Godzorla. Commander Griffin arrives before he can leave the hangar. Gary demands permission to avenge Sabat, his comrade, and, if Commander Griffin is to be believed, his lover. By now, it is clear that he won't stop unless they shoot him. Farah tells her men to let him go. Hatred is stronger than any weapon, she observes, and perhaps there is still a way to turn these events to their advantage. Uso is looking all over the underground base for Shakti, unaware that she's actually still out in the woods with Carlman. When he runs into Katagina, he asks what she thought of his piloting. If he was hoping for praise, he is soon disappointed. Her voice turns hard. So, how did it feel, killing somebody? He can't meet her gaze. How can a kid like you do something like that? She presses. I was just afraid, he explains. I didn't do it because I wanted to. This seems to please her. She smiles and wipes some crumbs off his face, tells him not to become a scary person, and walks away. Alarms blare inside the League base. They have spotted the Godzorla. The factory's defenders scramble for concealed positions around the perimeter. They'll fight if they must, but the enemy hasn't found the secret facility yet, and they pray this lone mobile suit will pass by without incident. But the enemy has found them. Chronicle, disguised as a League mechanic in stolen coveralls, signals Gary with his flare gun. He's shocked to realize the Godzorla is operating alone without reinforcements. But at first, it hardly seems to matter. Gary soars overhead, incinerating the outmatched League fighters with impunity. Explosions rock the underground facility. Uso finds Odello and Susie sheltering under a table. Marbet, in a wheelchair because her wound has opened up again, asks him to sortie. He starts to leave, seemingly headed for the core fighter, but Katagina appears in the doorway and blocks his path. You must be frightened, Uso. You don't have to go. When he asks, if not me, then who, she points an accusatory finger at Marbet and the grandmotherly woman pushing her wheelchair. Someone in the resistance will do it. This war has nothing to do with you. Shouldn't you be looking for Shakti instead of fighting? Leave it to the adults to kill each other. He's just a little boy. We see him as so much more than that, Marbet responds. The room shakes, Susie wails, and Uso makes up his mind. He doesn't want any of them to die. Not Katagina, not Marbet, not anyone. He'll fight. He launches in the core fighter, but even with support from the few remaining ground batteries, the tiny fighters of Vulcans can't scratch the mighty Godzilla. But when he combines with the hangar, Gary becomes confused. Convinced that he's facing multiple machines, he keeps looking around for the smaller fighter. His distraction allows Uso to finish forming the Victory Gundam. Gary is happy to see this new enemy. Nothing would please him better than a good old-fashioned duel between mobile suits. A well-placed shot drills a hole through the Victory's ankle, immobilizing it. The Godzorla goes in for the kill with its beam saber, but the blow lands on the Victory's shoulder, and Uso retaliates, cutting clean through the Godzorla's waist. Gary crawls from his stricken machine and drags himself across the ground toward the wreck of the Victory. He hauls himself to his feet, points his pistol at the Victory's cockpit, and empties the magazine in a last futile show of defiance. The sight of a man so consumed by hatred horrifies Uso. He blames himself for it. This is all his fault. One of the old men tries to comfort him, reminding the boy that he can't control everything and ought not to blame himself. Katagina cuts in, 
She's glad that Uso feels miserable. It disgusts her to see the League sending Uso into battle. While she excoriates old Leonid, Uso slips quietly away, only to see Shakti finally back from her walk, unharmed, with Karlman and Flanders in tow. All the misery melts from Uso's face. They embrace, both relieved to see the other safe. With tears in her eyes, Shakti begs him to return to Casarelia with her. He's taken aback, but when Katagina interjects that he ought to do as Shakti asks, he agrees to think about it. Whether he returns to Casarelia or stays with the League, he won't be staying here. Now that the facility has been located, their only hope is to evacuate it as soon as possible. It has become a race. Count Nyung gathers the survivors in the mess hall and gives them all their instructions to disperse into smaller groups once more, taking the factory equipment with them. They work through the night, and by dawn, the first convoys are back on the road. But they are too slow. Vespa has returned with the morning light. Six Zolos, equipped for ground bombardment, hover over the factory, blasting every truck they see. The underground facility crumbles under the weight of their bombs. Shakti tries to stop Uso from getting back in the Gundam to face this new threat. Isn't he scared? But it seems that he has finally had enough of everyone telling him how he ought to feel. Of course I'm scared, he shouts. Should we just die? Lie down and let them kill us? No. Uso wants to live, and he's going to protect her, too. He launches into battle once more. Quick note about last week's episode, actually. Uh, after seeing that massive computer room under Uso's house, I asked my dad, who has worked in computing for a long time, a bit about it, if it had the look of a particular era, if he could tell me anything more about it just from screenshots of the scene. And he described it as very typical of large data set storage from the 80s. This is the kind of facility that would have housed government data or like seismic readings or weather information, you know, these massive data sets. But you have to remember one of the things that's progressed the fastest in computing technology is storage space. Those kind of data sets would have needed a room that size <laughs> and that many computers just to have it all. And this would have been before cloud computing really took off. So businesses that wanted to be able to access those data sets at any time, had to store them locally. It was also usually more cost-effective to store that whole data set in one place because you would have needed a lot of electricity, you would have needed pretty uh, specific climate control for the computer storage as well because computers were a lot more sensitive uh, to those conditions. And you could get deals if all of your electricity usage was in one place. Like, you knew you were going to need a lot you could negotiate better rates this way. Obviously, in the universal century, electricity is basically free, so that's not as much of a concern. Hooray for fusion! <laughs> but this is how large data sets would have been stored at that time. We know it can be accessed remotely from Uso's terminal in the house. I think your dad mentioned the possibility that it was being accessed from other places as well, that there might be like really long underground cables connecting this data center to other government facilities, there might have been people in UWIG accessing the data in this 
underground data center, not realizing that was where it came from. They just logged into their terminals and the data was there. The data might not have been hosted on a website. It might not have been publicly available. But using what is effectively internet infrastructure, people off-site could have pinged this data set for information as well. So Uso's family has been doing pirate tech support, pirate server administration or something. It is funny to think about how computers used to be in these like hermetically sealed rooms and you couldn't bring any food or drink anywhere near them and everything had to be kept super clean. And now people like hold their phone in the bathtub, (laughs) (laughs) spill food and drinks on it all the time. A phone that could theoretically have more storage capacity than this entire facility. Also following up on something I said last week, I have been informed by several people now that whatever Tomino's thematic obsession with babies is, it started before Beltorchka's children. It started at least as early as Space Runaway Ideon, which features a baby quite prominently. I have to shamefacedly admit that I have not seen all of Ideon. I've seen only one or two episodes, and so I completely missed the baby connection there. This is a Gundam podcast, not a Tomino podcast. Somebody should do a Tomino podcast. Not us. We're busy. One of you should do it. We believe in you. With last week out of the way, let's talk about this week. Episode 5, The Katagina Show featuring Katagina. She doesn't actually do that much, but there is this running theme throughout the episode of her feelings about League Militaire, her feelings about Uso and what he's doing. And to me, it feels like the whole rest of the episode operates in service to this basic argument. I'm not sure I would call it the Katagina show. She feels more like a a chorus commenting on everything throughout. She's so passive. She does so little. We've noted this for a couple of episodes. She doesn't do a lot. She's just kind of around making snarky comments. And yet, even though she does so little, I finished the episode having a lot of strong feelings about her and very few about anything else in the episode. My struggle this episode was trying to articulate what it is about Katagina here that rubs me the wrong way, that makes me really dislike her. Because on their face, I agree with a lot of her statements, or at least parts of her statements, and yet I really dislike her, and ultimately I think she's wrong. (laughs) I agree, like, intellectually with most of the things she's saying, and yet there's something about the way she says it, the times in which she says it. There's something about her that makes my skin crawl. I think I've narrowed it down, and as we talk through it, I'll sort of provide the the basis for this. But I think it comes down to three main points. The first one being, I don't think she actually cares about Uso. I think she's using him to make a point. That is made, I think, really evident in sort of the last scene that makes up this argument Mm -hmm. where Uso has come back from the fight. And Uso is like clearly miserable. And Katagina says, oh, I'm glad he feels that way. Because it was wrong of you to make him go fight. So I'm glad that he's miserable. And that she doesn't care about him is made so clear because as she's having this argument, he like turns and walks away and she doesn't even notice that he's going. And he then immediately runs into Shakti and it's Shakti who comforts him, who interacts with him, Mm -hmm. who, who speaks to him from the heart. Who expresses to him that she was worried about him. She's so glad he's okay. Also in that scene, it felt sort of of a piece with Katagina talking about how glad she was that Uig was destroyed. She's glad that a bunch of innocent people suffer because she feels like it makes her point. 
And every time she talks to Uso in this episode, no matter what she says, she finds a way to make him feel bad about himself. It's very easy for someone to be judgmental when they have no skin in the game. And despite the fact that she's eating these people's food and dependent on them for, like, physical protection, she gives every appearance of not really caring about the things they care about. And she keeps saying, oh, I'm, I'm so disgusted that you would send him out to fight and ask him to fight for you. But, like, she's saying this while dozens of League Militaire soldiers are being exploded directly above her. The show is making very clear that the these League Militaire civilian resistance fighters are putting their lives on the line, are dying in great numbers. It's not as if they're hiding safe in Jaburo and expecting Amuro to go and do all the fighting for them. And while I may express a certain amount of disbelief and or horror that somehow they only had one pilot before Uso popped into the Shako, that is the situation that is presented to us. They have Marbet, and Marbet is horribly injured. And this kind of ties into my second point about Katagina. As yet, there is no indication that she cares about anything enough to fight for it. And so, of course, she takes this position. She doesn't think that what League Militaire is fighting for is worth the cost. Okay, but like, what is? Most things worth having have to be fought for in some way at some point. And maybe there are things she feels that way about, but it really doesn't look like it. And she never offers an alternative. She says, Uso, don't fight. But as Uso himself says at the end of this, the alternative is just lying down and dying. Him being a child, Shakti, Odello, Susie, Warren, their childhood will not save them. It didn't save Karlman when they gunned down his mother in the streets of Uig. And this ties into my third point, which uh, has come up, I think, probably in every Gundam series where the protagonist is a minor and we talk about kids in war. Katagina entirely disregards that Uso might have any agency whatsoever. And while it's obviously horrible that he is in this position... Her repeated assertions that this war has nothing to do with him are patently false. And if he would rather fight, if it's less scary, if it's less horrible to fight than to wait for the end to come, that's just war. I actually wondered, so among the League Militaire, we get kind of a range of reactions to him. And this is one of the first times we've seen more young adults in the range of Marbet's age, and they express much more shock and more deeply conflicted feelings about Uso piloting. They are concerned. They don't like it. Marbet cries. Marbet's tears aren't going to help anything, but I appreciate that she would like to protect Uso if she could. And Marbet's tears are a sharp contrast to Katagina, who despite insisting that Uso not fight, doesn't really feel for him. Then there's all the older folks who seem to be kind of taking it in stride, and to the extent that they are trying to care for Uso, it's in very practical ways. It's let him sleep. It's, kid, I know this is awful, but no single person, not even you, is so important that they're responsible for the condition of every enemy soldier. Like, you can't put that on yourself. There's clearly a generational difference here, and part of that could just be that 
kids Uso's age were much more likely to have to work or do dangerous things when they were coming up, when they were kids, and so they take this in stride more. It might also be that those of them who remember previous fights, previous wars, remember what that did to kids. They know none of those kids come through unscathed, whether they fight or not. They're, none of it is very clean, and the best they can do for him is to support him as much as possible. They really can't keep him out of it at this point. And at this point, it seems he wouldn't want to be kept out of it. And then there's this great moment, well, sort of two moments that connect together. When Katagina asks Uso, how did it feel to kill someone? Or how do you feel now that you've killed someone? At first, he's shocked and his mouth is hanging open, which I thought was a great touch. But after he's responding to her, she seems less concerned than sort of like clinical but she wipes the crumbs from his mouth with a napkin, which was like an oddly motherly gesture from her. All the interactions between Uso and Katagina feel maternal in this episode, and not in a positive way. Strongly negative here. Uso's response to her, like, look at his body posture in that interaction. He's standing at parade rest. Um, mm -hmm. It's very formal. He seems definitely intimidated, maybe a little bit scared by her. Well, he wants her approval. Desperately. But he doesn't act this way with any of the other adults or the other kids. Only Katagina puts him into this, like, tiny, shrinking little corner where he has to lower his head and avert his eyes and answer yes ma'am, no ma'am to everything. Katagina in this episode put me in mind of nothing so much as Kamaria Ray, Amuro's mother, in episode mm. 13 of First mm -hmm. Gundam. Because it, she has that same attitude of, like, refusing to recognize the necessities of the situation, refusing to recognize the kid's agency, just refusing to reckon with reality. Like back in First Gundam, in episode 13, one of the first things that happens is Amuro meets up with his old neighbor, uh, the mother of the little girl that he used to play with when he was, you know, four. And the little girl has died in the war. She died in the Xeon bombardment. Children are not spared from these things. And yet, Kamaria maintains this absolute refusal to accept the possibility of her son as a soldier. And partly that's because of her attitude of pacifism, but a lot of it is that she is not willing to allow her son to grow up. She is afraid of the person he is turning into, and that's both because he's turning into a soldier, but also because he is turning into a man. And because she was absent for so much of his childhood, it's like, oh, I never get to experience you as a child. You are already a man now. Now for Katagina. Throughout this episode, she keeps insisting on Uso's childishness, his boyhood, and she is uh, hostile to anything about him that suggests his transition into adulthood, his burgeoning manhood. The other scene where that came across very strongly was when he has ducked out of that other conversation and he's talking to Shakti and Shakti says, let's go back to Casarelia. And he seems surprised when Shakti says it, but before he can really think about it, Katagina butts in with, yeah, you really should. You should do what Shakti says. And he looks angry when Katagina makes this comment. His face goes from sort of surprised to irritated. Mm -hmm. And then he admits that he'll think about it. But the fact that Katagina feels entitled to voice an opinion about all of his business <laughs> is probably starting to wear a little thin. And her tone of voice makes it so clear in this instance. It's not an opinion. It's a command. She's not saying, yeah, I think you should do it. She's saying, do it. And for the most part, she's not really asking what Uso wants. She's telling everyone else how to treat him and telling him what to do. 
he is caught between two groups of people telling him what to do, but he got in the shackle and he could still say no. They can't make him pilot. And how many times has he saved Katagina's life? And in fact, the League military seems to have basically nothing of what you would call military discipline. No one is really giving orders. No one is, like, insisting that these people stay. There are no uniforms. They're all just wearing regular civilian clothing. Uh, when, when Marbet tells him to sortie, it's not a very strong command, but it is an instruction. She is telling him, not mm -hmm. asking. There's no threat of being thrown into solitary confinement. No one is slapping Uso and telling him to get back in the Gundam. Really, a, a guerrilla army like the League Militaire, which splits up its forces and has all these small groups operating basically independently, could never function with the level of rigorous discipline that an army like Bespa uses. Everybody there has to want to be there. They have to want to be there real bad because the prospects for them are so bad. Like Every time we see them in battle, it's a disaster. It's a calamity. They have to know that. I've been mostly talking about why I disagree with Katagina and why I think she's wrong. You know, a couple of points that I think that she makes that are fair when she mentions later in the episode her hatred for people like them, you know, throwing Uso into the war. And this guy says, I can't refute your way of thinking, but she gets angry because, oh, well, you always have an answer for everything. You always have a justification for everything. But, 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 like... That way of thinking doesn't change anything, which is true. There are plenty of ways to find excuses for behavior if you want to. But that's, you know, anybody finds justifications for how they behave. That's just kind of human nature. Look, I don't think Katagina's way of thinking about things changes much either. Like, I, don't, I don't know if you've had this experience, but have you ever been to like a meeting for an activist group or for really a meeting for anything and you're trying to figure out what to do about problem uh, what actions can you take to make it better and sometimes there will be a person there a couple of people who just whatever suggestion is made it's bad they'll criticize it from every angle it's not enough it's the wrong tactic it comes from the wrong place of thinking like this constant like there's always something to tear down and nothing to suggest in its place and when you have somebody like that in your group, they just sap all the energy out of it. And you end up doing nothing. And the older generation winds up looking a lot more reasonable because they all basically agree with Katagina. It's terrible that Uso is in this situation. They just think they're mitigating circumstances. But Katagina is never willing to admit <laughs> to those mitigating circumstances in any way. And though Katagina is the main example of this in this episode, this idea may be that young people are more rigid in their thinking. Young people want everything to be black and white. They don't like exceptions. They don't like but. I think we've been done a disservice by the translation for this uh, episode because during her argument with the grandma, whose name I don't remember, if we've just, even learned it. I just call her granny. In Katagina's argument with Granny, Granny basically gives a very clear explanation of what's wrong with Katagina here. In English, this is translated as Granny calling her pompous. The phrase she uses in Japanese is atama dekachi. It's an idiom, and it literally means something like big-headed. In English, we also have an idiom, big-headed, and it means someone who is pompous. In Japanese, it means more like 
an armchair general. Mm. A theorist who has no practical experience. Someone who is all thinking and no feeling. All theory, no practice. And that's like, that is what Katagina is. She has these rigid dogmatic principles and she's completely unwilling to compromise them in the face of lived reality. And in the moments when she could back up those positions with actions, she never does. <laughs> like, oh, it was good Uig was destroyed, but she didn't help do it. One of the accusations she levels at Uso is, you'd rather fight for them than look for Shakti? He's the only one who can pilot the mobile suit. You could look for Shakti if you actually care about <laughs> Shakti, which you don't. You're just trying to guilt Uso. In the Uig bombing episode, she goes to those resistance fighters and is like, can't you do anything? Can't you save everyone? And when they're like, no, <laughs> she doesn't actually do anything herself. She doesn't join the resistance or even try to save anyone. And then she's sort of a contrast to Odello, Warren, and Susie, who are, it becomes very clear in this episode, undecided about whether to stick with the League Militaire or not. They fell in with the League Militaire because their hometown or home city was horribly destroyed. They're refugees. They managed to get out. I'm sure this felt safer than traveling alone on foot. Uh, and also they get fed, which is a bonus in such times. I think their hometown has been occupied and subjected to a reign of terror, but not bombed in the same way that Uig was. Okay. Well, either way, they're refugees. They fell in with the League Militaire because of happenstance and because it was the best option available to them at the time. They're not certain whether they're going to stay with them or not. But as long as they're there, they're willing to be helpful because they recognize that that helps keep the whole group of them safe. <laughs> and even outside of Katagina's commentary, I believe the show wants us to think about and feel this conflict between Uso as a child and Uso as a young person with a, a growing sense of self-determination and a growing sense of wanting to control his own destiny, as it were. I would go even simpler than that. It is a contrast between Uso as a child and Uso as a warrior. The episode sets up Gary as our example of the warrior type, who is so consumed by rage, by his desire for vengeance, that it like possesses him, that he throws himself into battle, believing that he will die, popping pills just to be able to function. At the end of the episode, Uso, too, is consumed by that kind of rage. He's gritting his teeth, he's screaming defiance, and the color palette, all the visuals of the episode suddenly become distorted. They become like a film negative. Uso's face flashes red because he's so angry. He becomes like Gary mm. here at the end. Mm -hmm. Yet at the beginning, he is doing one of the most childish things we've ever seen him do. Oh, it He's was using so the funny. Gundam to bully Odello and Susie until they declare him to be a genius. The playfulness of it, and then the interaction between them all later when Warren teases that, oh, you know, you really ought to thank us for all the cover fire and support. And he thanks them readily. He does appreciate it. Uh, and Odello comments like, oh, it's that uh, humility that makes you so easy to stay friends with. <laughs> because if he weren't humble, he would be insufferable, probably. <laughs> that 
Warren has decided that he's in charge of driving the camion. And we saw him like play driving one before. So clearly Warren just likes big truck. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The way in which Uso's response to a bunch of people staring at him is to be like, "Uh oh, am I in trouble? (laughs) It's like, oh, kid. (laughs) I did love that animation you mentioned at the end. The there's a point where it goes black and white and then flashing colors back and forth. Uh, Really good stuff. It's a good looking episode. Yeah. It's well directed. Though there is one bit in the fight with Gary, I think, where Uso's like, oh, my Vulcans and the ground batteries aren't doing anything. But it's only after that that we see the ground battery fire ineffectually. So probably those cuts were supposed to happen in the opposite order. And I know, like, one of the famous anecdotes about victory is that when the whole thing was over at the rap party, some of the people, I think, from the photography team came up to Tomino and were like apologized for all the mistakes they had made and that this was like a crushing moment for him personally because he felt like if he had been doing his job and supervising them properly there wouldn't have been those mistakes Mm. you mentioned Gary thought it was very interesting that the commander just kind of like drops that oh well it's natural to be enraged if your lover dies Dupre's like huh (laughs) what what now And then she kind of fig leafs over it. I think it's meant to be a fig leaf. I I believe she says something like, tatoeba nashi, like, oh, bad example. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't really mean he was gay, wink, wink. Yeah, I do wonder about that. It's just enough to make it deniable, I guess. Yeah, because the subs do it as figuratively speaking. And that... Having realized that they are not going to stop Gary from going, she decides to make the most of it in a very cold, calculating, but understandable way. And they instead use this as an opportunity to collect some test flight and battle data on both the Godzorla and the Recarl, uh, as well as on this new League Militaire mobile suit they know so little about. You know, Victory has consistently emphasized the difficulties of communication. And that Bespa knows so little about this new mobile suit, despite fighting it for like three episodes now, is part of that. That Gary, because he wasn't there for the battle when the victory transformed for the first time, doesn't actually know that it does that. He doesn't know that the little fighter can become a bigger fighter oh and my that gosh. it then becomes a mobile suit. I thought that was such a nice touch. Brilliant. He is like, oh, where did the little fighter go? Oh, no, now there's three of them. I could be surrounded. Right. Even when he's facing the mobile suit, he's still like, where's the core fighter? Where's that other slightly bigger fighter? But now, because of Farah's mission in the Recarl, they have actually seen it combine. And so presumably in the future, they'll know a little bit more about it. You know, with Minofsky particles and radio issues, their constant use of low-tech options like flares to communicate information... And a flare, of course, can only communicate very ambiguously. It's just like, hey, pay attention to this area. Also, almost every time they send up a flare, they show us a cut of the core fighter flying through the smoke trail. (laughs) It's very cool. Gets me every time. Also think it's very significant when you talk about Gary as this kind of prototypical warrior type that he says during the fight he prefers beam sabers. He announces his name when he is standing in front of the Gundam. He announces that his name is Gary Tun. It's very, like, old, 
epic poetry, like <laughs> battlefield yeah. duel, right? Absolutely. Gary Tan, the man so angry he couldn't die. There's a joke on the Japanese side of the fandom that we don't actually know Gary's last name because, you know, there's the honorifics, so-and-so San, so-and-so Sama, so-and-so Kun, so-and-so Chan. For babies, you can call them Tan, so-and-so Tan. <laughs> and so instead of Gary Tan, they call him Gary Tan. Tan is like a diminutive of Chan. It's like even littler than Chan. Ickle baby Gary. No one knows his last name. I feel like the other important thing to bring up about kids and childhood in this episode is that Chronicle apparently has a huge soft spot for kids. And also some kind of connection to Shakti. Yeah, right? Keeps coming up. They keep running into each other. There is this sense of fate or connection to that. There's the fact that he has a flashback while she's singing this lullaby, and he remembers his sister singing the same lullaby. And then he remembers, at least I think it's meant to be his memory, a woman, we can't see her face, holding a baby and singing the same song. And the baby looks an awful lot like Shakti. Yep. And the woman looks at least plausibly like Chronicle. That could very well be his sister. Well, it's a, a pale woman with brown hair. We really don't know, but yeah. Yeah, it, but he's thinking about his sister right. and the lullaby that she sang, and yeah. then we see a woman who looks plausibly <laughs> like his sister holding Shakti. I don't know if it's meant to be a memory or something else, more like a vision. I don't know if that's accessible to Chronicle. But this scene for me, like I have it down in my notes. Oh, Shakti is important, important. Like right. Shakti is not important because she's Uso's friend the way a Frabo was, or a Fayuri. Shakti's important in her own right because of who she is, like a Sela or a Kwes. I have not yet had a chance to look up the song to see if it's like a real folk song or lullaby. The mention of young people flying away on the wings of their dreams and the mention of scattering poppies made me think it might be related to war or like an anti-war song or something, uh, but maybe not. That poppy symbolism is largely European, and so uh, could be no connection. But then there isn't just this moment. There's also when Chronicle has infiltrated the League military secret facility, secret factory. By the way, Chronicle in his League military getup with his jumpsuit and his fatigue cap looks more like a soldier than anyone else in the entire facility. And yet nobody notices him and goes, wait, who are you? What are you doing here? <laughs> but when he sees Susie sleepwalk into the hallway and crouch down to pee, he could just leave it. You know, it, it doesn't really matter <laughs> in this enemy base if this kid pees in a hallway. But he is both so into, like, doing things by the book <laughs> and the rules and also seems to care about and want to look after kids, that he like guides her away, presumably to an appropriate place, and then back to her room. And then he shields Shakti and Susie from falling rubble once the base is under attack. Even though he's the one who fired the flare that alerted the Bespa forces of where this facility was. He is responsible for the attack, but he still wants to save these little kids. And related to what I said about him wanting to do things by the book, when he notices that it's just Gary, that it's just one mobile suit, 
He cannot understand why they would do that, because obviously, if you were going to take out an enemy base, you wouldn't just send one guy. You would send a squad. And so he is, you know, well, as was already pointed out by his commander, he doesn't have much experience. He is having to learn in the field that the sort of by-the-book way in which he was taught to go about things is not really how they tend to play out. It's a bit unclear because Shakti doesn't get to do a whole lot, but she continues to form kind of a contrast to Katagina. If Katagina is all head, all thinking, all theory, then Shakti is all heart, all feeling, and all practice. She is Kokoro Tekachi. I don't know if that works. Uh, yeah, I have no idea. Every time Katagina opens her mouth in this episode, it's basically to complain about League Militaire and talk about how terrible they are. But she is still staying on the base. She hasn't decided on some other course of action yet. Shakti is not afraid of going back to Casarelia and being on her own. It becomes pretty clear when the fight with Gary starts that she must have walked really far away <laughs> from this facility. She must have, like, gone on a long walk because even though she spots Gary fly overhead, she is unaware of the combat for most of the time that it's happening. Shakti's not afraid of the woods. She's not afraid of being by herself. She's quite self-reliant. She doesn't really want to stay with the League military. She doesn't want to get caught up in things either, but has demonstrated she's perfectly willing to give up the ostensible like resources and protection. I'm holding out hope for more League military pilots just at other secret facilities, since we know there's more than one. They're scattered throughout the countryside. Well, they seem to have been mass-producing parts for this Gundam. One would hope that they have more pilots. I did have the dark thought that food seems very plentiful, which probably means they don't have as many people with them as they thought they would have. Well, we know that the whole staff of this facility died in Uig. There's a mention of the Shrike team, some questions of what's happening in England... A good question, when we would all like to know the answer. What's happening to... in England? That pretty incredible uh, shot of the sun cresting over the mountains at dawn with the, the group of Vespa mobile suits on their way. Yeah, very unusual to have a cliffhanger like this. Typically, the rhythm of an episode is there is one fight, either in the first or second half of the episode, usually the second half, and then the rest of it is dedicated to emotional beats, character building, world building around that single fight. It's always remarkable when an episode has either two or zero fights. And here, I really like it. Setting up the second battle, ending on the cliffhanger, I'm really excited to watch that next episode. What will happen now that Uso has gone berserker mode? Uso has gone berserker mode. I guess we should call it Gary mode. Gary's mode. And I'm kind of expecting the Eagles allies will arrive. Nina, I don't think a bunch of eagles would be very effective against mobile suits. I know they're large, but unless they've evolved a lot... What if they're mecha eagles? Well, I guess it would make sense for the Shrike team to pilot mecha birds of prey. And now the conclusion of Nina's research on women in Japanese society in the early 90s. That the early 90s and the bursting of the asset price bubble form a kind of inflection point has come up again and again. Japan was changing, and the major trends that would define the next decade and more were just beginning to be felt. 
Now, circa 2024, the Japanese government's preoccupation with increasing the birth rate is so well-known that in English-language anime circles, we joke that natalist media has the Abe Shinzo seal of approval. There had been concern about the low birth rate at the government and societal level for decades. The birth rate had been declining since 1950 and had dropped below the replacement rate of 2.1 in the early 60s. But it was in the early 90s that this concern really increased in intensity, fueling a new moral panic. In their book chapter on the relationship between Japanese mothers and their unmarried adult daughters, Wagatsuma and Nakano note that in the 70s and 80s, the moral anxieties around young women focused more on sex. In particular, that young women were having sex freely, even with foreigners, and that there was a perceived increase in the number of married women having affairs. <coughs> Tomino! <coughs> <laughs> From the early to mid-90s, the focus of these anxieties became unmarried women, women delaying or foregoing marriage, and women delaying having children. In another paper, Ho Sui Lin identifies the collapse of the bubble economy as a point when attitudes toward marriage began to change, and many other sources I read agreed. Society as a whole was more interested in self-actualization, more tolerant of diverse lifestyles, Women had more options than before, and for individual women, marriage became less economically or socially necessary. Yet, from the government's perspective, this was a catastrophe. Remember that in Japan, marriage and childrearing are inextricably linked. Only maybe 1% of childbirths are to unmarried people, and most married couples had children if they were able, typically soon after marrying. This is why delayed marriage and choosing to stay unmarried were seen as causes of the declining birth rate. Sidebar that I wouldn't want you to think that I accept the Japanese government's logic on this point. Personally, I think there are other more significant contributing factors, but it's the government's logic that had such a big cultural impact over the next decade and more. These conditions also gave rise to what one source called a reactionary rhetorical climate, a conservative backlash in response to the progress of Japanese feminism. As Ofra Goldstein-Gedoni describes it in her paper on consumerism and domesticity, as marriage became increasingly optional, conservative rhetoric gave the choice moral weight. Marriage wasn't merely traditional, assumed, or expected— it was the correct and good course of action. This conflict between changing social trends and the government interest, feminist progress and conservative backlash, bubble economy consumerism and new economic realities, and how it all affected women's lives and choices played out in the mass media and in public discourse. Broadly speaking, the media's focus at this time was on women's seemingly unprecedented power, freedom, wealth, and options. Old archetypes of womanhood, like the Yamato Nadeshiko, a perfect specimen of Japanese femininity who was poised, decorous, kind, gentle, graceful, humble, patient, virtuous, respectful, benevolent, honest, charitable, faithful, demure, and modest— these were losing their dominance. From there, new archetypes emerged, stereotypes or caricatures of new types of women, each type subject to scrutiny, criticism, and debate. There was the aristocracy of the unmarried, 
urban unmarried renters who spent their money on things like travel and luxury goods. The Oyaji girl was a working woman who took on masculine traits or became manlike in order to fit in and succeed in the masculine sphere of work. Barbara Maloney describes the Oyaji girl, An Oyaji is an old chap, one of the boys. The term has an avuncular ring to it. By behaving in a more masculine way, the Oyaji girl does not challenge the status quo in the workplace or demand any change of the working environment. Koishi Miho, writing about sports in contemporary Japanese culture, noted that women's participation in sports as leisure activity had been on the rise since the 1980s and included sports previously thought of as men's, such as judo, wrestling, baseball, and soccer. There seemed to be a decreased sense of conflict between sport and the public displays of physicality that sport involves and femininity which Koishihara interprets as an evolution beyond that old Yamato Nadashiko archetype. The term parasite singles wouldn't enter popular use until the mid to late 90s, but the trend that inspired it, an increasing number of young single people moving back in with their parents, began earlier in the decade. Media and public discourse zeroed in on the apparent childishness and selfishness of this trend. In the case of women specifically, that young women were codependent and indulged by their mothers, happy to be cared for and to have their meals and laundry taken care of, selfishly relying on their parents for housing and household expenses, using the money they saved on additional luxuries for themselves. Rarely discussed were the practical reasons for the trend. Some unmarried women moved back in order to care for their aging parents, while others did so because of low salaries and high rents. For the first time in decades, the comparative wealth, generation to generation, was declining. The parents' generation was, on average, wealthier and better able to shoulder many of these expenses. And Goldstein Gidoni delves into the Hanako-zoku, or Hanako tribe. Working women who were in their 20s during the last days of the bubble economy, the name a reference to the fashion, dining, and travel magazine Hanako. The Hanakozoku were frequently characterized as individualistic, hedonistic, selfish, and enthusiastic participants in consumer culture. Magazines aimed at this group depicted lots of international travel, living abroad, fine dining, designer clothes, hobbies like horseback riding and golf. They even wrote about dating foreign men. Altogether, these topics constructed an image of high-class global culture allowing the magazine's readers to, as Nancy Rosenberger puts it, imagine themselves as cosmopolitan elites. Views of the Hanako-zoku weren't entirely negative. They were also seen as more independent, intellectually ambitious, willing and able to manage their own money, and less concerned with catering to men than previous generations. Some older women pinned their hopes on the Hanako-zoku as a generation, quote, expected to make a change both in women's lives and in the nature of the Japanese family. Yet the majority of them reached their 30s, married, had children, and became full-time housewives, just as previous generations had. Why and how did that happen? For one thing, marriage and childbearing persisted as markers of a woman's maturity without which she would not really be considered a full participant in society, a full adult. Although the role of full-time housewife had become less normative, Goldstein Gadoni points out a kind of social pendulum that thanks to the aforementioned reactionary rhetorical climate, 
the 90s saw the role of full-time housewife become, quote, so strongly normative it was practically synonymous with womanhood. In spite of the diversification of women's roles, in modern Japan, the idea of shufu, or housewife, has been regarded as the cardinal point with regard to which women reflect about themselves. If the smallest unit of society in the United States is the individual, in Japanese thought, it is the family. Kueyama Takami, describing home as a concept in Japanese culture, paints a picture of a place of safety, where one can be less guarded, more relaxed, more open. A place where the family, atomized by daily life of work and school, becomes whole again. But in this paradigm, the home cannot fulfill its function without a wife and mother to keep the home fires burning, as it were. This meant that, as protectors of hearth and home, the wife and mother was, in effect, responsible for the integrity of the family unit. And this kind of environment was considered by many to be essential for wholesome child-rearing. With so much at stake, is it any wonder that the ideal, archetypal wife and mother was totally devoted to her husband and children, her role characterized by self-sacrifice, endurance, hardship, and hard work. Or that, with the very foundation of society resting upon that role, it would accord a certain respect and esteem, a status superior to that accorded to women who were not married. This particular wife and mother archetype, largely unchanged from the good wife, wise mother of the Meiji period, forms quite the contrast with the carefree, self-absorbed image of the Hanako-zoku, and explains why women who wanted a career and marriage were often described as selfish or greedy. In fact, the Hanako-zoku was regarded with some suspicion, considered ill-equipped for the hard work and self-sacrifice deemed necessary for the role of wife and mother, a suspicion which seems to have been internalized by those selfsame women. In her interviews with young and married working women, and her analysis of magazines aimed at that audience, Rosenberger notes the sense of tension between the freedom and indulgence of that life stage and the responsibility and self-sacrifice of the presumed next life stage. Moreover, where the Hanakozoku life was associated with a cosmopolitan, international lifestyle, marriage and motherhood remained strongly associated with Japanese-ness. Young women had a prime example of this dichotomy in the current Empress Masako, after attending high school in the United States, she received her BA from Harvard University, then studied law at the University of Tokyo and international relations at Oxford. As a young woman, she lived independently and worked in Japan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs as a diplomat. In many ways, she was the very picture of that new woman with, quote, the income and English to cover the world. Yet in 1993, when she married the future Reiwa Emperor, she, quote, gave it all up for marriage and country, becoming the symbol of proper Japanese femininity as she submitted to the confining traditions of the emperor's household. How were young women to navigate this increasingly fraught transition? To my surprise, many young women considered marriage itself a decisive break, that the act of marrying and having children would cause them to mature as women, metamorphosing into someone less selfish and more nurturing. Additionally, some women marked this transition with symbolic gestures, for example, renouncing their old lifestyle by selling off the luxury goods they no longer had occasion to use. My brain is alight with the possible significance of Katagina rejecting taking care of Carlman in light of this view of motherhood as like 
a decisive break that forces you into the next stage of life. And changes you. So Katagina rejecting Karlman is the thing that allows her to continue to be who she is. I was surprised by that when I first read it. But you hear the same idea in the United States plenty that, oh, you'll feel differently once you have a kid. Oh, you'll feel differently once you get married. Like undertaking those events fundamentally changes you as a person. Not every woman wanted or even just assumed that she would take up that mantle. And to the extent that this wife and mother archetype was an unappealing lifestyle choice for modern women, one that may have caused them to delay marriage or consider foregoing it entirely, the market, in concert with the state's interests, stepped in to provide new, more appealing images of motherhood in modern Japan. One example, the charisma shufu, or charisma housewife, is defined by one primary transgression. She does not retire when she marries. No, it's not that she continues her paid employment outside the home. It's that in Japanese culture there was, and to some extent still is, this idea that women retire from being women when they marry and have children. That being a woman, that femininity is for maidens, is for attracting a husband, but that the role of wife and mother is de-sexed, and that same femininity becomes superfluous, self-indulgent, even wasteful. But the charisma housewife was encouraged to take pride in her appearance, to wake up extra early so that she could give herself a manicure or style her hair, to wear a cute apron while she cleaned the house, all of which was presented as something to do for oneself. She still goes on dates with her husband, and he still buys her jewelry or luxury designer goods as gifts. The Charisma Housewife was a fixture of many magazines aimed at young married women, and not only featured advertisements for cute home goods and depictions of stylish married women out on dates with their husbands, but also depictions of these cute, stylish women happily performing their housewife tasks, and interviews with real Charisma Housewives where they describe domesticity as fun, a source of joy, a source of fulfillment, Instead of being filled with toil and drudgery, this way of being a housewife was beautiful and powerful. Care for the self became one more expression of dedication to and pride in the household, one more way to promote a beautiful home environment for the sake of family happiness and harmony. Have you spotted where this is going? There are many other subtypes of housewife, but most serve a similar function. They reconcile the older wife and mother archetype with the new consumeristic lifestyle enjoyed by young Japanese women. To the benefit of business interests, they retain women as consumers while giving advertisers clear market segments for the sale of goods and services. In fact, they tell homebound women that they can still be active participants in society in the public sphere through consumer culture. This aligned with government interests. After the bubble burst, they wanted to encourage spending, and to the benefit of the government and the more conservative and reactionary elements in it, these new types of wife and mother mostly encourage and reproduce traditional gender roles, albeit wrapped in new and more attractive packaging. This seems like a classic example of what's called recuperation, or the process by which a dominant social order can absorb and repurpose radical challenging ideas in order to reinforce its own hegemony that these new ideas, these new archetypes of womanhood and femininity challenge the existing social order, but they can be absorbed 
and recuperated into a new gloss, a new varnish on top of what are basically the same old ideas. Unlike previous post-war generations who saw a certain amount of self-denial and asceticism as virtuous, the Shinjin-rui, or new breed, saw consumption as a positive thing, and the women of the Shinjin-rui generation were no exception. In fact, women were now the primary consumer force. If they intended to marry eventually, they had little to lose by focusing on leisure activities over work, or spending over saving. Women who were married were likelier to have their own money from some kind of employment, and were also responsible for many of the household's spending decisions, not just their personal ones. Businesses were quick to celebrate women's consumption as emancipation and empowerment, and to cast consumerism as an outlet for self-expression. The increasing number of women trying to have the threefold life I described last week, one that included work, marriage, and children, also increased demand for certain types of goods. For example, convenience items like instant foods. As Vera Mackey notes, Feminist demands in Japan have only been granted in areas immediately compatible with capitalist growth. And Goldstein Gadoni describes this process as the market intensifying its grip on Japanese women of all ages through the production of seemingly new images of female domesticity that nevertheless reassert and reproduce the status quo. Somehow, even though Motherhood 2.0 was just like Motherhood Classic but now available in a dozen different colors, these new archetypes still drew conservative ire. The why comes down to what we called in last week's talkback the mother versus working woman dichotomy. In Japan, it is the mother and the toilet. As written about by Tanaka Mitsu in her manifesto for the feminist group Tatakao Onna, Fighting Women, in 1970, Men do not regard women as whole, integrated people, emotional and sexual, their sexuality and expression of their feelings. Rather, as far as men are concerned, a woman is split into two images, either the expression of maternal love and the emotional quality of gentleness, a mother, or a vessel for the management of lust, a toilet. This dichotomy was likely the main driver of the old wives-retire-from-being-women paradigm, and continues to crop up in conservative criticism of young wives and mothers who don't conform to the old model. In an article of advice from middle-aged intellectuals to young women of the day, which appeared in Frau magazine in 1993, one of the authors complains that today's young women, quote, all wear makeup now, just like in foreign countries, so you can't tell the difference between students, office ladies, hostesses, and mistresses. And goes on to suggest that the glamorous office lady is the sort of woman a husband might have an affair with, but that wives who can cook and who talk gently are safe from divorce. The underlying beliefs are clear enough. There is a type of woman men want to have sex with, and a type of woman men want their wife to be, and the two are and should be completely different from each other. If the younger generation are blurring the lines between types, how was anyone supposed to know how to treat them? Some conservative commentators were not just against women working after marriage, but even against groups and activities that took women out of the home. Their total rejection of attempts to reconcile contemporary consumer culture and the old conception of motherhood included complaints that this new generation of wives and mothers were, quote, obsessed with maintaining a youthful appearance, that they put on heavy makeup, wear bright red clothing, keep themselves skinny, 
dye their hair, all in order to look young. Even attempts to reframe housework as enjoyable were bad. It's not clearly stated, but it does seem that they thought being a wife and mother should entail a kind of noble suffering, and that, in an odd similarity to Puritanism, nothing enjoyable could be morally good, at least where women were concerned. Per Goldstein, paraphrasing another commentator, a housewife who devotes too much effort to cultivating her outward appearance does not merely lack a good sense of what constituted proper conduct, her shocking wrongdoing is, alas, closely related to a dangerous lack of Japanese spirit. To spend time and money on the self is tantamount to stealing from the family, and moreover, these new images of motherhood are un-Japanese, perhaps a sign of the pernicious influence of Western culture. This isn't just commentary, it's meant to be coercive. Where other new archetypes of wife and mother almost look like a sales pitch, in the case of the charisma housewife in a magazine, see, being a housewife can be cute and fun. The conservative effort to reinforce the old archetype focuses on its importance to Japanese society as a whole and shames or casts moral judgment on women who don't conform. In spite of the hopes pinned on the Hanakozoku by some older generations of women, a survey showed that female college graduates born after 1963, so graduating college in 1985 or later, had more traditional attitudes toward gender roles than their predecessors. More women were working, and women were postponing marriage and living independently, yet most single women still seemed to aspire to marry into a somewhat remodeled but still male breadwinner model of family life. If, as Rosenberger described, the young, unmarried, working women of the 90s were socially and psychologically unmoored, it seems that marriage and childbearing effectively stitched most of them back into their prescribed places in Japanese society. This wasn't really the main focus of your research, but I couldn't help but notice, uh, as you were talking, that a lot of the backlash seems to be focused on generalized anxieties about changes in Japanese society, which are being focused onto women. So frequently it comes back to the pernicious threat of foreign influence, which is expressed as our women are dating those foreigners. Our women are behaving more like foreigners. They're wearing makeup like foreigners. They're consuming like foreigners. And then there's also the anxiety about the declining birth rate and the perceived threats to Japanese society that that represents. And again, it's focused onto the women. It's not this big social problem. It's the women who aren't behaving properly. The women making individual choices for all that marriage at this time in Japan and still to this day uh, requires, in fact, a man and a woman. There's much less attention paid to why men might be marrying older and older. And they were. It wasn't just women marrying at older ages. It was across the board. And I'm pleased you brought up the thing about foreigners. Foreigners are after our women. Because one of the sources mentioned all these magazines for young women, even when they talked about living abroad, even when they talked about dating foreigners, there was an almost taboo against showing pictures of Japanese women with foreign men, probably because of that social anxiety, uh, but also, as the author of the paper puts it, it, kind of keeps it in the realm of fantasy. 
that this was something young women wanted to fantasize about as part of a fantasy lifestyle, but that was not necessarily something they actually wanted to happen, actually wanted to do in their life. To bring it all the way back to Gundam again, in his later writing, Tomino talks quite frankly about struggling during this period with the idea that maybe his daughters might someday marry foreigners and that it was a real struggle for him to get over his opposition to that idea. It does feel very ironic that for all of this hand-wringing, ultimately most women were still getting married and having children and spending at least part of their adult life as housewives. The most common sort of employment curve for women was M-shaped. You worked before you married, you quit when you had kids, worked again in some capacity once your kids were older, and then you retired as you got old. In Tomino's work, we see all the hand-wringing. It never addresses the fact that the prevailing trends were much as they had been before. Katagina might wait until she's 30, but statistically, she will get married and have a kid. <laughs> well, he might get there eventually. Certainly, his ideas about working women do seem to be evolving uh, from work to work. And actually, if you open the aperture wide enough to bring Amuro's mother, Kamari Ray, into focus, it begins to seem as though Tomino's objection is not to women working per se, but to mothers who abandon their kids for any reason. Kamaria, while she did have her work uh, at the refugee camp, Kamaria abandoned Amaro for the sake of an affair with another man. Tomino's preoccupation here is with selfish parents, with parents who are obsessed with satisfying their own desires at the expense of their kids. And that's as true for Kamaria's adulterous affair, Temre's obsession with building the Gundam, Hilda Badan throwing herself into her work, not because she's like a hard-driving career woman who's obsessed with her work, but because she's trying to get away from the reality of her failing marriage, uh, all the way up to Monica Arno, who is probably the most complex one so far, with her mixture of really caring about her kids, but also really being devoted to her work, but maybe her work is evil, but her reasons for doing it are good. There's a lot in the soup. I will say I think Tomino is much less permissive of male infidelity than Japanese society was generally considered to be at this time, at least based off of the one example of the Bidans. There's a, a quote I've seen from Tomino where he, he actually talks a little bit about his like his personal relationship to infidelity. Mm. Um, infidelity, very common in this period. Extremely, yeah. Tomino, at least according to him, <laughs> said that whenever he had feelings of attraction to someone other than his wife, he would just go into his room and like draw them out. He'd put all of, <laughs> he'd put all of his lustful feelings into his drawings, which I guess are hidden somewhere in his room. And then he would go back to his wife and remain faithful to her. Now that's his version. We only have his word to go on. But all evidence does indicate that he has a very close and loving relationship with his wife. Like, unusually so for someone his age. It has been frequently commented on that whatever opinions might be expressed in his works, as a father himself to two daughters, he was very unconventional, very much encouraged them to pursue their dreams and to not worry about fitting into conventional archetypes of womanhood. 
ultimately, at least in our most recent example, we'll see if victory changes this. But I do think the example of the Arnos shows that he is harder on mothers than he is on fathers. He's critical of both kinds of obsession, both kinds of neglect. But the Arno kids had their father around, and he gives every appearance of having been a loving, attentive, kind father. But they're still way messed up over their mom not being around. And yet they are still willing to like mend those bridges and contemplate a future in which she returns to their lives, albeit only after she has abandoned her work outside of the home. Or space arc. Next time on episode 10.6, A World Gone Mad, we research and discuss episode 6 of Victory Gundam and The Three Amigos. Look who finally decided to get involved. A legendary symbol of resistance. Go your own way. Those old guys really know how to make an entrance. Spinning drill fist attack! No fear! Okay, one fear. Spoils of war. Attack of the flying torsos. Yare yare. And the brutal discipline of Watari Gila. Please listen to it. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Slow by Lloyd Rogers. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes on our website, gundampodcast.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email hosts at gundampodcast.com or look for links to our social media accounts on our website. And if you would like to support the show, please share us with your friends, leave a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts, or support us financially at gundampodcast.com Patreon. You can find links and more ways to help out at gundampodcast.com support. Thank you for listening. The Gundam fandom has been corrupted by wrong opinions, and the only way to purify ourselves is by exposing them to the light of day. Only by purging the wrong opinions can we appreciate impeccably correct opinions, like how Steve thinks that Sunrise should have addressed Inoue Yo's absence by making Sela the star of Zeta, but having her constantly take huge bites of hamburger so that she's forced to express herself entirely through the medium of wild but silent gesticulation for 50 episodes. Just imagine all of the other correct opinions lurking out there, enshrouded in the darkness of our collective wrongness. Your scrungly bimbo. Blimbo. Scrungly bimbo is something entirely different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Freudian slip? I guess so. Who doesn't want a scrungly bimbo? Just thinking about millennials. Yep. Millennial discourse of the mid 2000s. Mm-hmm.
mean, Gojira. Gojira also, there's no D sound in it. It's right. implied. But despite all, or shoot, I forgot how I structured the beginning of this sentence. Oh no. Uh, 